You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 82 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And with the almost 24-7 focus in the news on the coronavirus, COVID-19 at the moment, and its implications across the whole of society, we make no apologies for dedicating the bulk of this week's edition to GDPR matters around coronavirus. So we begin with a look at GDPR, the coronavirus and working from home and what you need to be considering at the moment if you're thinking about you or your workforce working from home in the next few weeks. We then have a look at Article 9.2 subparagraph 1 of GDPR, having a look at what it is, what it means. It's the first time through the coronavirus that there's been a circumstance which has triggered uh, 921 of GDPR. And so you may well not be familiar with it, so we have a quick run through what it is, what it means, what how it applies to most people. We then have a coronavirus GDPR FAQ section, for you where we address some of the questions which some of you have sent in to us this week about GDPR and coronavirus and how the two work together and how you can keep your workforce best working in that period while still remaining GDPR compliant. So it, it really is a very useful section of questions so please do have a listen to that and having listened to it if there's any questions which you think oh actually that was good, but it didn't answer this, then let us know that question we didn't answer. Um, And you can do that by sending us an email to podcast at insurety.co.uk. That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y dot co.uk. And if we get more questions, we'll bring them to you in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. So after that FAQ, we then look at another relevant thing with the coronavirus, which is, does your data breach policy cope with everyone working remotely? Because it almost certainly wasn't drawn up with the thought of everyone working remotely. And so, does it cope with that? That's another thing you need to have a look at. Then we move away from the coronavirus, back on to more usual GDPR things. We start with a look at Google appealing its penalty for not removing search results when it was requested to do so via a request to be forgotten under GDPR. We then return briefly to uh, the coronavirus because we talk about a company that's been very much hit by the fallout from the coronavirus, which is the cruise industry and Princess Cruises, who have cancelled all their cruises worldwide, have also this week announced that they've had a data breach. And so we have some news on that for you. We then look at something which has implications on the whole programmatic ad arena, which is that CNIL, the French ICO, have now agreed to investigate Critio over the whole issue of implied consent. So when is consent not consent? And that's going to be a legal case which is going to run and run, I think. But we bring you the latest on that. And then whilst we're in the legal vein, we bring you an update on three long-term ongoing legal cases involving 
Morrison Supermarkets, British Airways and Doodle. Three different cases, I should add, they're not all in the same legal case, but those three legal cases that have been going on for some time, we've been your Twitch update and where we think they're likely to go in the rest of 2020. So, a very packed programme for you this week, and I apologise in advance that we've run over our normal 30 minutes to something like 45, but we feel the need was there to get all of this information out to you this week, so I hope you find it useful and informative. As always, if you have any feedback, do drop us a line to podcast.insurity.co.uk. We do read every single one of your feedback emails that we receive. We don't unfortunately have time to reply to them individually, but please be sure we do read them, and wherever possible, we incorporate your suggestions into future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. One of the main things that's likely to happen with the onset of the coronavirus is an increase in working from home, and indeed it's likely within the next few days that the government will be doing everything it can to encourage uh, people to work from home. That's in the UK, of course, across Europe. It's already been the case introduced by a number of governments to get people to work from home. So how does that affect GDPR or how does GDPR affect working from home more specifically? Well, the number of things to think about. Typically, when we think about working from home, we think about the actual computer connection that people use. And, of course, that's important. It's important from a productivity point of view that your employees have a good broadband connection. But that's probably taken as red. If you can, it's well worth setting up a virtual private network for VPN. But we recognise that not everyone will have the time or the resource to do that before the need to implement uh, home working. However, if you can implement a VPN, it is strongly recommended and it's obviously the, the exemplar way of working. But if you can't do that, then at least make sure that your connection between your remote workers and your main central office is as secure as it can. So, you know, access should definitely be over HTTPS uh, and not just normal HTTP because that leaves things incredibly vulnerable. Also try and think about what you're going to transfer by email to people working from home and again look into whether it's possible to secure those emails. Again, if you can, that is really great and it's what you should be aiming for. You really should try and avoid using insecure email. But aside from that, let's think also about paper documents. And think also about printers because in the office you might have a very strict control over who can print what and who sees what paper documents. Someone working at home, you probably don't have that same control. If they've got the document on their PC or on their Mac or whatever they're working on, chances are they're going to be able to print it. So they might print it at home and then there's a paper copy of that document, which your GDPR procedures won't know exists in all probability. So you need to come up with some firm guidelines for your employees on that. And if your employees need to take folders home from the office, papers home from the office with them to work on, then again, you need to think about any personal data that may be in those papers and you need to make sure that you are as certain as you can be that your employees actually have a lockable storage container at home to keep those documents in, to keep them away from prying eyes whilst they're at home. That might be a filing cabinet, it might be some other lockable storage, but either way it needs to be a situation where you can be confident that when they're not being worked on, those documents are being locked away. You don't want other members of the family or visitors to the house being able to read documents that 
ordinarily they would have no access to. The same is true about where your employees are working, by the way. If they have a laptop or a desktop that they're working at home, then again, try and encourage them to put it in a room where other members of the family aren't going to be able to just stand behind them and read everything that's on the screen. Otherwise, you're effectively throwing all your privacy safeguards out the window all in one go, and you really don't want to do that. GDPR can't be abandoned just because staff are working at home. So you do need to think about how you're going to keep that data secure. And then the other part of people working from home and having things printed out on paper is how they're going to get rid of paper documents that they, they don't need anymore. Now, you have two ways of working with that. You can either say, periodically, they have to bring them back into the office so they can be threaded securely, which you should be doing already, of course, or that you make sure that each member of staff who's working from home, who might print things out, has access to a cross-chat threader, and that might mean you need to buy cross-chat threaders and distribute them to your staff. Now, if you're going to do that, I would suggest you do that very early this week, because as more and more organisations are either voluntarily or forced into having their staff working from home, and more and more following guidelines like this, then obviously the demand on cross-chat threaders is probably going to shoot through the roof, and there's only a limited supply of them. Now, please, again, much as people have been noticed in the press not to stockpile things, please don't go mad either. You know, if you've only got five members of staff all working from home, you really don't need to buy 15 cross-touch threaders. So, you know, be, be sensible about it, but do make sure they have a cross-touch threader. Make sure that they know how to use it. Encourage them to use it. Encourage them that once that data or papers have been threaded, either bag them securely so that when they do come back into the office, they can bring them into you for destruction, or they can probably safely be disposed of in the household rubbish, but only, only if they've been threaded through a cross-out threader. You really must emphasise to your staff they shouldn't just rip up a piece of paper or just brew it up and throw it in their domestic rubbish. That is the window to a real problem in the future and a data breach waiting to happen. So please instruct your staff not to do that. And then what about security of the building where they're working, security of their home? You should really encourage your your staff to ensure that they keep the premises locked, especially at night or when they're not in the premises. And you know, that means door locks, that means window locks too. Um, so again, it's worth thinking about if someone breaks into that house and steals a load of your paperwork, it's you who's got the problem and not your employee. So hopefully that's given you some food to sort. We will probably cover this again in a bit more depth next week because as with the coronavirus situation nationally, guidelines on everything else are evolving, shall we say, as we go through day by day at the moment. So we are looking to give you in this podcast best practice for now, but that best practice might change as time goes on. So we will come back to this uh, whole issue of homeworking in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, and quite possibly, quite probably even, in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. In our last article, we mentioned that GDPR still applies, even though the coronavirus is so prevalent, and that is true. However, there is a section of GDPR specifically Article 9, uh, Paragraph 2, Subparagraph I of GDPR, which allows the processing of special categories of data where they wouldn't normally be allowed 
and where that's justified in the reasons of public interest in the area of public health, such as protecting against serious cross-border threats to health. And quite obviously, I think, since coronavirus shows absolutely no respect for international borders, then it's felt by everyone in the know that COVID-19, the coronavirus, presents the first instance where Article 9 to subparagraph I can actually be applied. So what does that mean in reality? Well, it means that you can gather sensitive data, particularly medical data, about your employees, which you might not normally be thought able to gather. So, you know, if someone self, um, self-isolates and reports to you they're not coming into work for a week or two weeks because they're self-isolating and staying at home because they believe they may have the coronavirus, then you are able to record that on their personnel record with no fear of any problems in the future because, as I say, it's allowed under Article 9 to subparagraph I. So what does that actually mean in different countries across Europe? Because different countries have different stages of the coronavirus at the moment and different procedures in place. So it's worth perhaps having a look at Italy, because Italy's sort of been used as a European benchmark, if you like. It's where all other European countries are measuring themselves against because Europe, Italy are widely considered to be ahead of the curve in where their coronavirus outbreak has got to. But it's fairly certain that almost all the other European countries will reach that level of uh, numbers of people infected and, sadly, number of deaths, um, as Italy has now. So in Italy, the Italian Civil Protection Department have adopted a piece of legislation which they've titled Civil Protection Ordinance Number 630. They adopted that on February the 3rd, 2020, as an urgent measure to combat the spread of COVID-19. The ordinance gives civil protection personnel in Italy extensive powers to process personal data related to the COVID-19 crisis. Currently, it is only valid until July the 30th, 2020, but of course it could always be extended. The ordinance lifts restrictions on, amongst other things, the sharing of personal data necessary for performance of the civil protection function that could include sensitive personal information such as race or ethnic origin, political opinions, religious or philosophical beliefs, union membership, genetic data, biometric data for the purpose of unambiguously identifying a natural person, health data, data concerning the health or data concerning the sexual life or orientation, and data on criminal convictions and offences. So basically all of the special categories of data Italy has relaxed its rules on. But it should be stressed only for those people involved in civil protection. Moving now to France. In France, the authorities there have issued an information notice on February 28, specifically regarding the processing of personal data throughout the investigation of COVID-19. It says that they expect health authorities, businesses and individuals to carry out the rules of GDPR. But the notice permits that the transmission of data to any partner involved in the control, prevention and evaluation of the epidemic, in particular the General Directorate of Health. However, the legislation passed in France does confirm that data subjects will retain their rights to object, access, rectify and seek erasure of the information shared. 
And so to clarify that, Senior, the French body, has said that only the data strictly necessary for the accomplishment of the mission of the said partner will be transferred in conditions preserving confidentiality and security, thereby reflecting the general concept of data minimization in GDPR. In addition, indefinite data sharing is prohibited, and thereafter anonymized data should be held for a maximum of one year after the end of the corona investigations. In Germany, they take the line that limiting data protection for a public good is not a novel concept. Section 22, paragraph 1 of the new German Federal Data Protection Act permits processing of special categories of personal data under Article 9 of GDPR. Section 22, paragraph 2 of the German Federal Data Protection Act obliges the parties involved to protect these data sets by specific security measures depending on the particular circumstances, such as encryption, data separation, data access controls, and specific storage backup. Germany's Infection Protection Act, which replaced the Federal Law on Diseases 2002, contains numerous data processing authorization for local, state, and national health departments and agencies, even in cases of suspicion, and includes extensive reporting obligations by doctors and etc. to those government agencies. If we cross over to the US, in the US there's of course not yet a uniform data protection regulation. There is CCPA in California and various other states working on their own legislation, but there is no general legislation. And the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act 1996 does not provide for the suspension of its protections of provider-selected health information, but suggests that fines and penalties resulting from compliance with health emergency directives may be suspended upon review from the US Office for Civil Rights. So, while it's reasonable to assume that a public health emergency requires exceptional measures to contain the outbreak, the consequences of exposed data subjects of such measures is less clear. What is clear is that relevant agencies may track subjects where an infection is suspected using mobile device data, email and geolocation information to evaluate risk. The amount of data collected through these measures could be substantial and the selection could be performed without the knowledge of the data subject. It's also not clear what happens with all that collected data once the crisis is over and who should then have access to them. Our view is that while awareness and vigilance are required to ensure that individual countries and data protection authorities abide by the limitations of GDPR, it's important that this whole episode of COVID-19 of coronavirus doesn't lead to a weakening of the entire GDPR regime, which so many of us have spent the last two years since GDPR came into operation actually trying to enforce on the business and public communities and providing much needed data protection. It is perhaps worth stating that under the transparency rules of GDPR, if you are going to rely on GDPR Article 9 to Paragraph 1, it's important that you specify that to your employees, that that is what you're doing and that's why you are holding the extra sensitive data. This is a technical subject and doubtless one that we will return to in the next few episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We've received quite a number of questions this week from different companies and organisations about employers and employees and COVID-ID and uh, coronavirus and everything that's involved. 
and so we're going to try and address those in this session. Uh, if you have any questions relating to GDPR at all, or specifically relating to GDPR and Cobb ID at this time, then please do send them to us. Drop us an email to podcast at insurety.co.uk. That's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk. And we'll look to answer your questions in next week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. So this week we have the following questions. First question is, can an employer require all staff and visitors to the building to fill out a questionnaire requesting information on their recent travel history concerning countries affected by the virus and medical infrastructure, such as symptoms of fever, high temperature, etc. Well, on the first part of this, it's worth stating, of course, that employers have a legal obligation to protect the health of their employees and maintain a safe place of work. In this regard and in the current circumstances, employers would be justified in asking employees and visitors to inform them if they have visited an affected area and or are experiencing symptoms. Implementation of more stringent requirements, such as a questionnaire, would have to have a strong justification based on necessity and proportionality and on a risk assessment. This should take into consideration specific organisational factors such as the travel activities of staff attached to their duties, the presence of vulnerable persons in the workplace and any directions or guidance that may come from your own regional or national government or public health authority. There would be no data protection implications in bringing the HSE recommendations to the attention of staff and visitors if they have recently travelled to an affected area and or are experiencing symptoms and requesting that they take appropriate action, which is typically self-isolation. Any questions about the appropriate measures that should be implemented to protect against COVID-19 should be addressed to the relevant public health authorities. So next question, can an employer request more specific details of their employees' illness on medical certificates in light of the situation in relation to COVID-19. While employers have a legal obligation to protect the health of their employers, employees, employees also have a duty to take reasonable care to protect their health and the health of the people that they work with. In this regard, employers would be justified in requiring employees to inform them if they have a medical diagnosis of COVID-19 in order to allow necessary steps to be taken. There's notice is quite different this is where they've had a diagnosis of ID19 following a, a test and not just they are self-isolating. However, it's important to keep in mind that the recording and, and storage of any health information must be justified and factual and must be limited to what is necessary in order to allow the employer to implement health and safety measures. Employers should follow the advice and directions of the Public Health Authority, which may require the disclosure of personal data in the public interest to protect against serious threats to public health. And as we mentioned in our first article this week, that's covered under GDPR. So it is allowed to do that. If your health authority requests information from you about the number of employees that you have off sick and how many of them have COVID-19, you are allowed to report that to them. Employees, for their part, should follow the advice of their healthcare professionals and the public health authorities who instruct them as what they need to do if they present symptoms of COVID-19. The next question someone's asked is, can an employer send employees home from work if they're confirmed to have the virus? The answer to that is yes, you can. The decision to send employees home from work is not a data protection matter and may have other consequences for employers relating to employment law, e.g. entitlement to sick pay. And please remember that in the UK, at least, uh, statutory sick pay is now payable from day one for people self-identifying with COVID-19 or indeed being confirmed with COVID-19. And then 
the next question, which I'm sure lots of you probably have in mind, is can an employer disclose that an employee has the virus to their colleague? This should be avoided in the interest of maintaining the confidentiality of the employee's personal data. For example, an employer would be justified in informing staff that there has been a case or suspected case of COVID-19 in the organisation and hence it's requesting staff to work from home. The communication must not name the affected individual. And I can't overstress that as really important that you do not name individuals who are suspected of having or do have COVID-19. You may, however, need to provide the person's name in disclosure of this information to your public health authority. And then another question which someone's asked is, in the event of a data subject access request, do the timelines for responding to those requests still apply where an organisation is temporarily closed or capacity to handle requests is curtailed because of COVID-19? The ICOs advise that they acknowledge the significant impact of the COVID-19 health crisis, which may affect organisations' ability to action GDPR requests from individuals such as subject access requests. While the timelines for responding to requests from individuals are set down in law and GDPR at 30 days and can't be changed, it's recognised that unavoidable delays may arise as a direct result of the impacts of COVID-19. This is especially true in the case of frontline and public-facing organisations such as healthcare or local authorities where it would probably be wrong to divert resources to deal with subject access requests when those resources are better served in priority work areas dealing with the virus and dealing with people who have the virus. Any organisation experiencing difficulties in responding to requests within the 30 days should communicate with individuals concerned about the handling of their request including any extension to the period for responding and the reasons for delaying responding. It's not thought there needs to be any special ruling from the ICO on this, as the GDPR provides for an extension of two months to respond to a request when necessary, taking into account complexity number of requests, or in this case, force majeure, um, external circumstances. However, organisations experiencing difficulties in actioning subject access requests should also consider where it's possible to respond to requests in stages, for example, an organisation whose staff are working remotely may have difficulties in accessing hard documents, hard paper documents, but they may well still be able to provide the information that is there for that data subject in electronic records. In this case, it would be quite right to provide the electronic details directly to the person making the data subject access request and inform them that you'll provide them with paper copies at a later stage. What is really important is that you clearly communicate any decision such as this with the data subjects making data subject access requests. Where an organisation, due to the impact of COVID-19, cannot respond to a request within the statutory timelines, they remain under an obligation to do so and should ensure that the request is actioned as soon as is feasibly possible. For accountability and transparency purposes, the reason for not complying with the timeline should be documented by the organisation and clearly communicated to the affected individuals. Again, we suspect this is a subject we will come back to in forthcoming episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. We started this week talking about remote working and people working from home and what you need to consider in that case. But of course, one of the dangers of employees working from home is it does increase, undoubtedly, the chance of a data breach or you may have a data breach for another reason entirely, but your staff are working at home and have to deal with it. And so it is very important that you take the opportunity early this week to dust off your 
uh, data breach procedure if you've not looked at it for a while and think about how that procedure would work if everyone involved is not in one place if all those people are working from home what do you do do you bring them all into the office one day to deal with the data breach and collate a response or do you find a way of adjusting your procedure to be able to deal with it all with people working remotely and if you are working remotely who still has access to your data breach register because you do have a data breach register right um and who has access to that and who can update it is quite important so if someone notifies the data breach that they're working at home and your dpo is also working at home and your management team are also working at home then how are you going to handle that data breach how are you going to minimize the damage to the data how are you going to minimize the risk to the data how are you going to manage the whole process how are you going to make sure somebody talks to the ico if necessary how are you going to do all that if everyone's working remotely is that covered in your data breach action plan policy and if it isn't then now's the time to spend a few hours looking at your data breach policy and adjusting how that's going to work and if you need any help with that we are of course more than willing to help you please just drop us a line to podcast at insurety.co.uk that's the n-s-u-r-e-t-y.co.uk and one of our team of specialists will get back to you asap you're listening to the gdpr weekly show with your host keith budden In other GDPR-related news this week, Google has announced that it will appeal its latest GDPR penalty. The penalty in question was imposed by Sweden's Data Protection Authority, which fined Google 75 million kroner, or equivalent 7.8 million US dollars, for failure to remove search results related to the right to be forgotten requests under GDPR. On Wednesday, Sweden's privacy watchdog issued the fine after Google had not properly removed two search results listings. The case stems from an investigation that the Swedish General Data Protection uh, Authority began in 2017. Under GDPR's right to be forgotten rule, which was enacted in 2014 and strengthened with the passage of GDPR in 2018, Google and other search engines are required to hide certain pages from search results if a consumer requests it to do so. Under GDPR, organisations are required to provide Europeans with a copy of the personal information they store upon number upon request, and in addition, consumers can request that their personal details be forgotten, although that right to be forgotten is not absolute according to EU law. When Sweden's Data Protection Authority examined these latest complaints to Google, it found the company had not lived up to its obligations under the law. While the original case stems from 2017, a follow-up audit in 2018 by the agency found that Google had still not properly removed the links as requested. A spokesman said in one of the cases, Google has done a too narrow interpretation of what web addresses needed to be removed from the search results listings, in the second case, Google has failed to remove the search result listing without undue delay. The Swedish regulator also criticised Google for its practice of informing the website's owners that these links were due to be removed, which then allowed the owners to move the information to a different web address according to the report. A Google spokesman said that they disagreed with the decision on principle and planned to appeal. Over the years since GDPR came into being, 
Doodle has been one of the main targets of right to be forgotten requests. It is believed that Doodle received something like 3 million requests to be forgotten and so far has processed about 900,000 of them. Now we don't know the timing of this appeal or how long it will take or indeed what will happen at the appeal but when we get details of the Doodle's appeal and its success or failure we will of course bring you that in a future edition of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. It's widely acknowledged that the travel industry has been badly hit by the whole coronavirus COVID-19 saga, and no more so than the cruise industry. And one of the key players in the cruise industry, Princess Cruises, was the first to announce that all of its cruises were going to be suspended. It now seems that P&O are very likely to follow suit. But for Princess Cruises, the news just went from bad to worse because this week they also confirmed that they had suffered a data breach. Princess Cruises said that the company had detected unauthorised access to a number of its email accounts over a four-month period between April and July 2019, some of which had contained personal information on its employees, crew and guests. Princess Cruises said names, addresses, social security numbers and government IDs such as passport numbers and driver license numbers may have been accessed along with financial and health information. But the cruise line has said the potentially impacted data is not specific to each guest. Princess Cruises said it had discovered the suspicious activity on its network in May 2019. It's not known why it's taken almost a year for the cruise company to disclose the data breach and some cynical sources are suggesting they've chosen just to get all the bad news out in one go. We couldn't possibly comment on that and indeed when we contacted Princess Cruises they said that they didn't have a spokesperson immediately available for comment. Carnival, the holding company for the Princess brand, saw its shares fall by more than 30% this week after it said that it would suspend a fleet of 18 ships following the declaration of the COVID-19 pandemic. The company was at the centre of two separate incidents involving its ships carrying dozens of patients infected with coronavirus strain in Japan and more recently off the coast of California. The cruise liner did not say under which jurisdictions it had reported the data breach and we've not yet been able to establish with the ICO in the UK whether the data breach from Princess Cruises has been notified to them at all. So if we get any further news on this we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Earlier this week, UK-based campaign group Privacy International claimed victory after discovering that CNIL, the French Data Protection Authority, the French ICO, had in January opened an investigation into French ad tech company Critio, Privacy International filed complaints with the CNIL and Ireland and the ICO about Critio and six other ad tech companies in November 2018, claiming the firms did not have a legal basis for the way they were using consumer data. A senior spokesman said, I can confirm that CNIL has opened up an investigation into Critio. We are in the trial phase, so we can't communicate any further at this stage. A Critio spokesperson also confirmed the investigation, which was originally reported by TechCrunch. Critio also disclosed the investigation in its latest 10K financial filing with the SEC. 
the Tritio spokesman went on to say, we are currently collaborating with CNIL in their review and we remain completely confident in our privacy practices. Since our founding in Europe in 2005, we've developed our technology with the principle of privacy by design guiding us while helping our clients meet shopper expectations with advertising that is personalised and relevant. It's not known how long the investigation would take to reach a conclusion or what the outcome might be. But it is worth bearing in mind that in January 2019, CNIL issued Google with a 50 million euro penalty notice over GDPR, which the search giant has already said it will appeal. And a 50 million euro penalty is significant because at the time it was the largest penalty to be applied under GDPR. Yet despite the flurry of regulator activity around the ad tech space, there is still no case law in Europe to define what constitutes legitimate interest or informed consent. The more contentious of these two is legitimate interest. Under GDPR's legitimate interest lawful basis for processing data, businesses must prove that they've undergone a lengthy test internally and check that their interest in collecting the data outweighs the interest in the individual for not having the data collected. It must also be made easy for users to revoke that consent. Since GDPR came in, companies have been running the gamut on those definitions and how to correctly apply consent notices, particularly in the area of real-time bidding, in which data is passed between scores of players in the ad tech daisy chain in the milliseconds before an ad loads on the page. The Privacy International complaint from 2018, which also called out ad tech companies Taypad and Quantcast, explored how Critio relied on user consent passed from its advertising and publisher partners to process user information for its wider shopper data business. According to the complaint, Critio claimed it had, it had what is known as a legitimate interest, lawful basis, under GDPR to process its data in order to meet its contractual demands with its partners, which Privacy International said was insufficient. The complaint called out for particular concerns three Critio products. Shopper Draft, which holds data on more than 35 billion online and offline shopping transactions. Critio Engine, which uses browsing and other data signals to predict the user's likelihood to engage with an ad. And its dynamic retargeting ad product, which tracks shoppers who have shown interest in the product to target them with future ads. Senior's final decision holds the potential to be game-changing for Critio and for the wider ad tech industry. Consent notices remain a big cause of contention in European ad tech and publishing space. Critio initially took a stance if a user continued to browse the site after a consent notice had been displayed, they'd shown implied consent. Senior subsequently published draft recommendations on the use of cookies and trackers that requires users to perform a clear and positive action to indicate their consent, such as clicking on an accept button. And we've noticed certainly that Quantcast for one have now applied that to their sites where they are providing the ad technology. Yet in November, the Spanish Data Authority said continued browsing of a site after seeing the cookie notice would count as a user accepting the use of cookies whether they clicked on a button or not. And so there's this sort of grey area at the moment over whether specific consent is required or whether implied consent is enough. And so this story is going to run and run throughout 2020, I'm sure. And so whenever we get an update to it, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden.
and we finish this week with a very quick look at three cases which are currently working their way through the UK legal system and in at least one of the cases is likely to find its way into the Supreme Court. The three cases are various claimants versus Morrison Supermarkets, a claim which predates GDPR but in which over 5,000 claimants are seeking compensation from the well-known supermarket chain. The claims arise from a data breach in which a disgruntled employee posted college payroll information online in 2014. That's something we've covered in several previous episodes of the GDPR Wiki Show. The second case is that on the 4th of October 2019, the English High Court judge gave the green light to a group claim brought by thousands of claimants against British Airways PLC arising from the data security incident involving the personal data of approximately half a million customers in 2018. This claim was filed just months after the ICO had issued a £183 million fine against British Airways. And it was British Airways in the news very much at the moment with the ongoing uh, coronavirus issue, which is affecting airlines generally. So whether that will make the Supreme Court show any particular sympathy towards BA in this case, we just have to wait and see. And then the third case is Lloyd versus Google Inc. The claimant has sought a representative action on behalf of a class of 4.4 million iPhone users. The substance of the complaint is that Google tracked the iPhone users' internet activity without consent and for commercial purposes. The claimant has advanced a suggested figure of £750 damages for each member of the class at an early stage in the proceedings, making Google's estimate of its potential liability to be somewhere between £1 billion and £3 billion. These cases signal challenging times for the defending organisations. Companies can be vicariously liable for the personal data infringements caused by the action of rogue employees. Claimants can sue for loss of control of data, even if they suffer no financial loss or distress due to the breach, providing that the breach itself was not trivial. And class action style proceedings for data breaches are far more viable than they ever were in the past. It has to be said that recent decisions in the English courts appear to make it easier for victims of a data breach to bring class actions against defendant companies. Consequently, these companies may find themselves liable for potentially eye-watering sums in penalties, in addition to the fines they may already have to pay under GDPR. Those penalties are going in compensation to the people making the claim. This is particularly true in the Court of Appeals decision for Lloyd versus Google. The Court of Appeals decision, subject to further appeal, appears to make it significantly easier for victims of a data breach to bring opt-out style class actions, with a low threshold for establishing the damage that such victims must have suffered. This is a stark turnaround from the High Court's previous decisions. While the level of damages per claimant in these cases may not be particularly high, this will be a little consolation where the class action is brought by a class of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of individuals. In light of this, some businesses may be considering purchasing insurance to mitigate their potential liabilities. As the Court of Appeal put it in the Morrison's case, there have been many instances reported in the media in recent years of data breaches on a massive scale caused by either corporate system failures or negligence by individuals acting in the course of their employment. These might, depending on the facts, lead to a large number of claims against the relevant company for potentially ruinous amounts. The solution is to insure against such catastrophe, and employers can likewise insure against losses caused by dishonest or malicious employees. 
It went on to say, though, that the fact of a defendant being insured is not a reason for imposing liability, but the availability of insurance is a valid answer to the Doomsday or Armageddon argument. So, all three of these cases are likely to have rattled their way through the legal system in 2020. Um, perhaps they may act as a useful distraction from the coronavirus in the way that we're moving forward during the course of this year. But whatever, we will bring you the latest news from the courts on these three cases and indeed any other cases involving GDPR as we move forward through 2020 in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us and Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.